and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. In these first four verses, we have the first of five points to be taken from the 12th chapter of Hebrews. First of all, look at that word, wherefore. If you'll study the book of Hebrews looking for therefores, wherefores, so then, you'll find it one connected argument of presenting to the Jews reasons and motivation for them not to apostatize from their profession. Hebrews chapter 12, wherefore refers us back to the 40 verses of Hebrews chapter 11, where we've just had enumerated for our benefit the Hebrew elders who had obtained a good report. Wherefore, seeing that we've just looked at this large number of glorious examples of faith and works following their faith, let us take up this second argument. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Paul is now going to describe the Christian life as a race. And a race usually has spectators. And our Christian race has spectators in the figurative way that Paul is employing the term here. And these, this is the great cloud of witnesses of the Old Testament saints who have already gone home to be with the Lord himself, but who gave us an example of how to run our lives. Remember, the just shall live by faith. That was Old Testament and New Testament. Hebrews 11 are all Old Testament examples. There's a New Testament example in the chapter. The just shall live by faith no matter what testament you're under. And they are witnesses of how we're going to live because they've already set us an illustrious example of how we should run our race. And so they're witnesses now, in effect, by having been set up as our examples as to how we're going to run ours. This text does not preach, nor teach, nor does the rest of Scripture, that everyone in heaven is sitting there looking down, knowing all the details of your life. It's simply that God has given a great number of examples of those who have already lived a life of faith. They're now in heaven. And because their example has been set before us, they are witnesses against us. If we don't do better than they do, because we have had something better provided for us. Verse 40 of chapter 11 told us that. We have a greater advantage to live the life of faith than did they. Wherefore, seeing we also were compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Now, when men run races, what is one thing they make sure of? They're not carrying extra baggage. I mean, if you've ever looked at a runner's uniform or you've ever held one or you've ever worn one, it's of the lightest materials and it's of the skimpiest construction. <coughs> if you've ever looked at one, because they don't want any extra weight. Long-distance runners know that socks, many times, 
provide too much weight. So they run simply with their lightweight running shoes. If you've ever held a pair of track shoes, you know what I'm talking about. There's basically nothing there but a sole. And the sole is made of lightweight plastic nowadays with a few little spikes coming out of it because they're laid aside every weight. They're not going to enter a race with weights that would hinder their progress nor reduce their chances of victory. And Paul, in other places, compares the Christian life to a race. Now, he exhorts us here, and the Hebrews here, to lay aside every weight. What are the weights that hinder your Christian race? Is the question we must ask. Look at Romans chapter 13 with me, where the apostle teaches the same thing, in other words. Romans chapter 13. What weighs you down? When I see the word weight, let us lay aside every weight. We're talking about all kinds of weights. And by weight, I see those things that are not necessarily sins in themselves, but yet become sins because they weigh us down. Did you know there's a category of things in life that God hasn't commanded us to have, that God hasn't forbidden us to have, that are matters of what we call indifference in the Word of God? Take it or leave it. Except, leave it if it weighs you down. Some of you have laid aside jobs that would hinder you from running the race of being at the assemblies. Now, a job is not something that God forbids. But some jobs make requirements of their employees where you'd have to miss Sunday assemblies. Therefore, you need to lay aside that job. It's a weight that would weigh you down and hinder you from running your race. We have all sorts of weights. I'll mention a few more in a minute. But let's look at Romans 13, beginning at verse 11. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believe. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. We need to guard against the opportunity for sin. I have recently had opportunity to talk to several different brothers about some personal sins and personal situations that lead to sin. Let me talk about fornication for a minute. The Bible commands that we ought to abstain from fornication. I don't think we need to elaborate at great lengths on that point. It is a common problem. It has always been a common problem among men, even those that call themselves saints. But not only does the Bible condemn fornication, the actual deed, whether it's mind or body, the Bible condemns the deed. It also condemns you putting yourself in a situation that could lead to it. That's right. You say, where's that text? We just read it. Romans 13, 14, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You heard last Sunday evening a testimony about the importance of having chaperone dates, managed dates, or dates where a young couple is going to be kept from a situation that could degenerate into fornication. 
The Bible tells us make no provision for the flesh. The Bible told Timothy to flee youthful lust. Any situation that you know could tempt you, stay away from it. Because if you allow that provision, that sin, that provision, that lust, and the devil combined together are greater than you are. And God knows that. And unless you go into it ignorantly and God is able to deliver you, you go into it intentionally, you will fail. If a single man has a single woman uh, and he's alone with her an extended amount of time or they're already emotionally attached and they're alone, it will result in fornication. Just picking on this one particular sin. It will. If it doesn't, there's something wrong with the two parties. Because it is the natural thing to do is to fornicate when two young people who are highly attracted to each other are alone for an extended period of time. It is the expected thing to do. God made that to happen. That's why they're not supposed to be together. Until they're married. Alone for an extended period of time. Because it's the natural thing to do. God put those desires within men and women and when you put them together and you expect nothing to happen and we tell our young people that you ought not to fornicate and we allow situation after situation after situation, it will happen. And most of us know the terrible, painful lesson that it does happen. The actual sin itself is condemned in Scripture. The provision for the sin is condemned in Scripture. And the appearance of the sin is condemned in Scripture. Now, there's other principles that can be raised, but those are three important ones that I've had occasion recently to exhort men to consider. Don't sin, but that's usually the farthest away. Don't make a provision for the sin. And if you're wondering, well, what's a provision for the sin? Then don't even have the appearance of the sin. Don't even, don't even be in a situation or engage in activities that others would even think are related to sin. Stay away from it. By backing up through those three steps, how are you ever going to get to the actual sin? It's going to be hard. Very hard. But the Lord expects us to do that when He says, lay aside every weight. What weighs you down, brethren, so that you don't run your race as you should? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I know some of you may question the statement I just made that I said if two people are highly attracted to each other and are alone for an extended period of time, it's the natural expected thing for them to fornicate. How do I, what do I base that on? I base that on Romans chapter 1 and every other place in Scripture that describes the sexual desire in men. It is the natural use of the woman. Period. If you don't do it, given the situation I just described, then you're unnatural. Because the natural use of the woman is to use her for what God created her for. That's why we limit those occasions, or we should, among our young people. You say, well, what if I've got a will of steel and I'm the man of steel? I could be Superman again. The Bible still says, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. And the man that says that, I'll quote to him 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. It's that kind of confidence about sin that leads to sin. 
I can handle this temptation. It's no big deal for me. I can manage it. <laughs> there they go. And some of us know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's shift gears just a little bit and look at the subject of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 32, the apostle says, I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. That's a good text, isn't it, for husbands loving their wives? What does Paul automatically assume about husbands that are married? They care about the things of the world. They don't just read their Bibles with their wives. They care about the things of the world, how they may please their wives. Now, does Paul say you ought not to please your wives or to be worried about the things of the world? No, he's making a point here that even marriage, an honorable institution, a thing that is good for the man, weighs us down from giving ourselves as completely to the Lord. And it goes on to say the same thing for women in the following verses. Lay aside every weight that weighs us down in our race. One of those weights can be marriage. But for the vast majority of us, marriage is a necessity. And rightly so, and naturally so, because that's the way God made men and women. To avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. That's the natural course of things. But the point is this, something so good as marriage can yet be a weight. And that's why I ask you this morning, what is weighing you down in your zeal to run your race? Is it your job? You say, well, what's my race? Now I'd have to preach everything I've preached in four years. What's your race? Your race is to practice Christian character as I've preached it in about 30 messages. Your race is to practice Bible economics as I've preached it in about 11 messages. Your race is to have a prayer life like I preached in about 11 messages. And right on down the list, that's your race. The things God expects you to do. How about 22 tapes on child training? What weighs you down? Is it your job? Do you have a job that consumes so much of your time and energy, you don't have any left over for your family? Is it your family? Have you put your family... It's such a high position and it's such a high priority in your life that you do not have time left for the things of the Lord, like personal communion with God. Is it your house, your car, or other financial obligations you have that are weighing you down and filling your life with greater care than you have to have? These are all things, a job, a house, a family, these are things innocent in themselves, but they can become weights. To a Christian, they can drag you down. Riches. If you are ambitious to be rich, the Bible says it will drown you in destruction and perdition. If that's one of your goals in life, it will weigh you down and ruin your race. Other habits. Entertainment. You know, men would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. What is it in your life that in its proper place is acceptable to God, but it has become in your life a weight that slows down your motion, that is reducing your racing ability. What is it in your life? What slows you down from being a better Christian? Lay it aside. 
You know, the Savior went so far to say, if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. That means some practical, almost necessary relationship or situation in life, if it creates a temptation for you to lead you to sin, cut it off. God, Jesus did not mean for us to walk in next Sunday with hooks protruding from our suit coat sleeves. He did not literally mean cut off your right hand. He meant to cut off some practical situation in life that you could do better without. And that's a painful operation. No pain, no gain, brethren. If, there, if that's ever been true, it's true of the Christian experience. Right. It takes pain to run a good race. Any athlete knows that. Pluck out your right eye, something extremely valuable and precious in our lives. Pluck it out. Cast it from thee. It's better to win the race than to lose it. To mix two passages of Scripture. Not only does it, Paul tell us in Hebrews chapter 12 to lay aside every weight, he tells us to also lay aside the sin which doth so easily beset us. What sin easily besets you? Men that are honest with themselves, first of all, and with the Lord, know that there are certain sins that beset them more easily than others. Sometimes it is temperamental dispositions that determine what sin more easily besets some than others. Some sin by not being friendly enough because they don't show initiative in their personal relationships with others. That's a sin. They think, well, that's a mild one. No, God condemns it like he condemns other sins. Other men, by temperamental disposition, are prone to anger and criticism. And so they sin in their anger, their hasty ang anger, and their anger that is not quickly resolved and covered in a Bible way. Temperament can lead to sins. Some temperamental dispositions tend toward a superficial, foolish approach to life. Others approach life with a depressed, destroyed, cast-down, critical, moody approach. They're sins. And some of you tend toward one of those four areas more than another. Or you tend toward two of them more than the others. And it is those type of sin, that type of sin, that we need to guard against. That sin that we engaged in before we were converted will oftentimes have power over us after we're converted because of familiarity with it. If you have heightened your lusts and heightened your attraction towards some particular vice before you were converted, after you're converted, you may still have a great temptation with that thing. And it is our duty to be on particular guard against those areas and to lay them aside. A man that's been a drunkard, once converted, must take great pains to avoid that those alcoholic beverages that would incite and remind him of the pleasure he once received from alcohol. That, as an example, lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Your situation in life by your profession, your relationship to others, the condition of your health, your financial condition can all lead to sins that easily beset you. you. Remember how the man prayed in Proverbs chapter 30, he said, don't make me too rich. I might take your name in vain and not be thankful. If you're well off, make sure you're not falling into that category. If you're poor, don't go steal. 
or don't or do anything dishonestly in order to increase your gain. Those that were the two requests issued in Proverbs chapter 30. Those are sins that easily beset because of a situation. Just considering the effect of riches, a man that will love riches will bring upon himself a great temptation, a great snare for destruction. A man's life consists in far more than riches or the things of this life. You'll take nothing out of this world, and the things will do you no good in this world regarding the Lord without having a spiritual relationship with Him. Let us lay aside the sin that doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, just to see the example of a race in another place where the apostle compares living the life of a Christian to a race. Most young men dream of being an athlete. And the apostle Paul well understood that. The apostle Paul understood that athletics usually incites men to their greatest efforts. The goal of athletic achievement. And so it's compared to the Christian rate, the Christian life. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, the apostle writes, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. Ever seen the Boston Marathon on television? Thousands of runners assembled in the street. Oh, to be one of the front runners by your times coming into the race. But even though there's thousands running, how many get the prize? One gets the prize of being winner. I love the word of God. Second place is just as bad as last place. That's how God looks at things. Listen, what is second place? It means you're a loser. Doesn't it? How many win the race? One. First place. And that's and, and notice what Paul does. So run that ye may obtain. Run with that kind of an attitude. Only one gets the prize. And I've got to be that one. All out zealous effort to be the best. And to achieve God's best. Verse 25 Every man that striveth for the mastery, that is to win the race, is temperate in all things. Athletes are very disciplined individuals. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Ever seen a boxer punch himself out by missing the other guy? Every time you see a boxer give a great blow, but it misses, a great swing but misses and runs his arm all the way out to the length of his muscles and tendons, he will quickly wear out his arms. Those of you who've watched Rocky know how Rocky usually wins his fights. He lets the other boxers punch themselves out because he's got a face that loves to be beat to a pulp. Remember? Paul said, I don't fight that way. I don't beat the air. I make sure my blows land. I'm not cumbered down with weight. I'm not doing anything uncertainly. I'm disciplined in my approach. I don't throw a punch till I know it's going to land. In my Christian experience, I know what I'm doing. I know where my weaknesses are. I know where temptation lies. It can waste effort on my part. But I'm going to apply myself carefully and do everything that I should do. I'm temperate in all things. I keep under control. I don't get lost in the enthusiasm 
of what I'm doing so that I neglect or miss or don't see the danger that's approaching that we miss in our lives. We have to look after the sins that have a special attraction for us. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The Christian life, brethren, is not a sprint. The Christian life is not a sprint. Oh, to be a sprinter. 60 yards and it's over in the indoor season. 100 meters and it's over in the outdoor season. The Christian life, that doesn't, how much patience does it take to run 100 meters? It takes one good breath of air. Hyperventilate and one good breath of air and smoke it. Nine, ten seconds. But the race that the God here is describing for us is a race that requires patience. I hate long distance running. Can't stand it. Get bored after about 110 meters. Can you imagine those men that run 26 miles, 385 yards, marathoners? Now that's patience, to keep going, to keep going, to keep going. You know, the monkey jumps on my back. That's the expression used in track after about 110 meters. I got to carry a monkey the whole way. But a marathoner, the monkeys load on and he keeps on going. He keeps on going. He makes sure he's not carrying any excess baggage. And if you look at a marathoner, he's not. He's skin and bones and lungs. <laughs> skin and bones and lungs. That's the Christian life. It is a race of patience. When you look through Scripture, what word best describes the Christian life but continuing? Continuing. A sprint is easy. You can be an undisciplined man and be a good sprinter if God gave you a natural gift, but you will not be a good marathoner with any gift unless you apply yourself. Because there is no gift that can run 26 miles without strict training. Hebrews chapter 12, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. I read over there in Romans chapter 2 that they who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, they'll be rewarded with eternal life. They who through patient continuance in well-doing, that is the Christian life. It is not being a good Christian for the next week. It's not being a good Christian today alone. It's being a good Christian today, tomorrow, and every day that follows day by day. It is a race of patience. And Paul gives us a good analogy when he talks about a long-distance race in verse 1. Looking at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus. The first verse told us to consider the spectators. The spectators being the cloud of witnesses from chapter 11. How can you read about Enoch, Abel, Abraham, Sarah, David, Gideon, Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, Shamgar, and the others, Daniel, Jephthah, that are all mentioned there and not want want to run a good race? I mean, what an illustrious company of spectators. That's verse 1. But in verse 2, we're going to have Ray's an example of faith that wasn't given in Hebrews 11 because he was too good for Hebrews 11. All right. Looking unto Jesus. Is he an example of faith? Why, he is the author of our faith. He is the finisher of our faith. He is everything faith would ever hope to be or do. He is every, he is related to every aspect of our faith. The only reason we have faith is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will make sure our faith is perfect in that final day. 
And Jesus Christ himself was the greatest example of faith. Trust in God in face of evil circumstances. And the apostle will now raise, in the next three verses, the example of Jesus Christ. He's the author of our faith because our faith, according to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1, comes to us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith is obtained through Jesus Christ. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will finish it perfectly in that final day. He'll perfect everything that is lacking in our lives so that our faith will be perfect once we are in glory. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now look at what motivated Jesus Christ. I want you to look at this verse carefully. Who for the joy that was set before him Paul said that men in this world, men in the Olympics, run in order to achieve what? The prize, the gold medal. They run, we don't use crowns anymore, we use gold medals. The Greek games used to have crowns. You'd get a crown put on your head if you won the race. They run to achieve a crown. It's the joy set before them, you know, to stand in the victory stand. You've seen the looks on their faces. It's the culmination of a lifetime of joy. What pitiful joy. I mean, as soon as you step down, it's over. A great portion of it's over as soon as you step down. Ten years later, you can't get within touching distance of your time. Twenty years later, you got to watch it on videotape because you can't even run. Thirty years later, you're in a wheelchair in some nursing home. Forty years later, someone else owns your gold medal. Pitiful, isn't it? They run to obtain a corruptible crown. We run to obtain an incorruptible crown. Men sometimes want some cute, easy, nice, black and white lesson or motivation to be a better man. I don't know how to give you one better than what Paul said. There is an incorruptible crown waiting for those who run their race as well. You say that's too far away to motivate me. Then you don't have a very good perspective of it because it's so big and so glorious and so perfect that no matter how far away it is, it is worth running our pitifully short little race here called life. Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Everything Jesus Christ endured on the cross. And consider what he endured. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. There's so many verses of scripture on what Jesus Christ endured on the cross. I read over in the book of Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. They plucked off his hair. They spat on him. They mocked him. How would you like to stand and have your hair plucked off of your face? Look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 26. Speaking of Pilate, Matthew 27, 26, Then released he Barnabas unto them, Barabbas, excuse me, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Roman scourging often left the innards of a man exposed by tearing the flesh off the back below the ribcage. Scourging was not a pleasant ordeal. Verse 27, Then the soldiers of the governor 
took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. Do you know what the difference is between being made fun of by one person and being made fun of by an entire crowd? Do you know how demoralizing it is to have an entire crowd against you? Well, they got the whole band of soldiers together into the judgment hall, the common hall, and they stripped them. And put on him a scarlet robe. They mocked him as king. Verse 29. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. They made fun of him. They made a pretend crown. They made the crown of thorns. They put it on his head. They arrayed him in a robe and they mocked him. A whole band despising the Lord Jesus Christ. They spit upon him. Can you imagine? Most of you women can't even take the sound of men preparing to spit. We're talking about a man who had to stand there and receive it all over his body and face. They spit upon him and they took the reed out of his hand and smote him on the head, driving the thorns down into his head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And when they got him to the cross, they took his clothes off again, parted them among themselves, hung him on the cross, and mocked him for the next three hours. What is most impressive to me about the death of Jesus Christ, and that isn't covering all that happened to him, but just reminding us briefly of what he endured, is the fact that he could have spoken them out of existence. Now, if you were a normal man, and there was a century or two, which would be 100 or 200 soldiers, abusing you in a common judgment hall, there isn't much you can do about it. You could call them names, and they'd soon batter your mouth so that you couldn't do that. They'd batter you into insensibility. But Jesus Christ had every means at his disposal to have called, as he said, 12 legions of angels and rescued him in the most glorious fashion. Listen, he could have caused them to lose their eyesight so that he would have wandered around looking for them. He did that before, didn't he? That's right. They could have rotted in the spot with and ate, been ate by worms. Couldn't he have done that? That's right. Couldn't he have called fire down from heaven and burned them up on the spot? Couldn't leprosy have covered their faces? And they'd have all looked at each other and realized they'd all had leprosy to a terrible degree? Could the earth have opened up and swallowed them? Could lions have appeared in that hallway and devoured them? Could two she-bears have come out and devoured them? That is the most impressive thing to me. With all that strength and power, he took all that abuse and endured the cross. What was the motive for doing that? Look at Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Sometimes I may be too honest with you people. But you better be thankful I wasn't your savior. I don't, I'm just trying to speak to men's souls. If I'd have been in that judgment hall and had that kind of power, I don't know. Yes, I do know. Yes, I do know. I wouldn't have been able to make it to the cross. Jesus Christ was able to do it. What a glorious example. Here's... Hebrews 12 said, For the joy set before him, 
Something was in the future for him, and that motivated him to do it. Psalm 16, verse 8, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, is quoted in the book of Acts. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. God was right before him. He looked at God while he was going through all of that. God was close by where he could get a hold of him at his right hand. I shall not be moved. This is faith, brethren. It may not say the word faith, but this is the ultimate expression of faith. I shall not be moved. I have set God before me. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And where did Jesus Christ end up? At God's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. You think you've got pleasures here? There's pleasures there forevermore. And it was for that joy in God's presence that Jesus Christ endured the cross. Why can't we sometimes get as real of a view of those pleasures as Jesus Christ had? That has to be our goal. The Apostle Paul said that he forsook everything and he counted all things but dumb, that he might win a better resurrection. Philippians chapter 3. He was looking out there for that crown that would be given him in that day. Jesus Christ was able to endure what he did because he looked ahead and realized, I'm not going to sacrifice the future on the altar of the present. I'm not going to look for the easy way out in the present and lose eternal joys. And the abundant pleasures at God's right hand. Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross bore the shame despising the shame despising the shame what was he thinking inside you ain't done nothing yet well that's despising it you ain't done nothing yet listen I can take this because there's joy waiting for me that far exceeds anything you can ever do here and now he had already warned his disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. That's all you can do is kill me. He despised the shame. They mocked him. They made fun of him as king. They railed on him. They wagged their heads. It tells us they spat on him. He was naked and despised and rejected. But he despised all of that and went ahead through it anyway because of the future joy. It is pitiful when athletes can dedicate themselves for 20 years to achieve a gold medal right. and put themselves through daily pain and deprivation that's depriving themselves from pleasure in order for that one moment that will quickly disappear as they get older. Isn't that pitiful? And Christians have this eternal weight of glory waiting for them, and we find it difficult sometimes to put up with our suffering. 
and we never suffer as much as an athlete suffers. God's been too merciful to us for us to suffer to that degree. Jesus Christ made it by the joy that was set before him. And brethren, what happened? He is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, where there are those pleasures forevermore. And there is that joy in God's presence. He is at the right hand of God now. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. Are you able to laugh at the afflictions that come your way? Listen, we've got some brethren in this church that have had some afflictions come their way. Are you able to laugh at them and despise them, knowing that there's an eternal reward waiting for you? Verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Do you get tired of people making fun of your religion? People that you can't convert, ridiculing your faith? making fun of the gospel as we preach it? Does that get to you sometimes that you feel like fainting? Jesus Christ, every time he opened his mouth and there was a Pharisee, scribe, or lawyer around, always did something to contradict what he was saying. Consider, consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. There's a number of examples that I can give you, but you're familiar with all that they did to the Lord Jesus Christ trying to trap him, bringing that woman taken in adultery and trying to catch him, talking about taxes, trying to catch him, watching him as he healed someone the Sabbath day, and then contradicting him for breaking the law of Moses, always being contradicted. When he entered Jerusalem for the last time and, and the children came out and threw branches in the street for him and hailed him as, with hosannas, to the king of the Jews and the son of David, the Pharisees said, shouldn't you check these people? Contradicting them again for the praise that they were giving him. Contradicting them all the time. None of you have been contradicted like Jesus Christ was contradicted. Consider him. Think about him. Think about what he endured. And I want to ask you this. Where did it get him? Where is he? He's the right hand of God. Right. You know, he's going to have a whole lot of other brethren that are going to be at the right hand of God. Some will be in his right hand, and there'll be another group of men in his left hand. But there will be others that will be with Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. And the evidence, or those as far as we are concerned, let me put it that way, as far as we are concerned, the only ones that will be there are those that endure and run with patience their race lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds Galatians 6 9 puts it this way Galatians 6 9 the comforting verse let us not be weary in well doing let us not be weary in well doing for in due season we shall reap if we faint not we shall reap don't be weary in your well doing you're getting tired of doing some of the things you've had taught to you? Is it tiring to try to live up to all the expectations that God has before you? Don't be tired. Don't get weary. Don't get to... Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Now that can be a difficult verse. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. 
Does this mean that Paul is saying to these Hebrews, you haven't yet been whipped and bled in your profession of the gospel? No, because they had been. Paul was one of the ones that did it to them. Do you think Stephen bled before he died? Do you think other Jews bled when they were whipped and beat some stone for the profession of the gospel? Ye have not yet resisted in the blood, striving against sin. What happens in this verse to a lot of, a lot who, many people who read it is they keep the thought of verses 2 and 3 in mind and they don't return back to the Hebrews in verse 1. Verse 4 is talking about striving against sin. It's not talking about enduring persecution. It doesn't say ye have not yet resisted unto blood, enduring persecution. It says ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin, which runs us back to verse 1 because verses 2 and 3 are about Christ. Verse 1 said, let us lay aside the sin that doth so easily beset us. Do you have besetting sins that you have to strive against? You got any sins in your life that you have to strive against? Has the temptation in those sins been so great you've ever bled for it? You've never bled over your sins? There's only one man that's ever bled over temptation. And who was it? The Lord Jesus Christ. And when did he bleed? in the face of temptation in the garden when he sweat as it were drops of blood what was that tremendous sweating for as he fought the temptation facing him on the cross and angels came and comforted him you've never done that look unto Jesus brethren you say was he tempted the Bible says he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. In that garden, he sweat as it were drops of blood, being in a deep agony, and was sorrowful unto death, the Bible tells us, striving against the temptation of sin. Can you imagine what the devil was doing to the Lord Jesus Christ in that hour? You haven't been that far. You haven't been that far. Paul's first argument Hebrews chapter 12, running through verse 7, well, the whole chapter, is to maintain perseverance in our gospel profession. First argument is verses 1 through 4. Consider the witnesses of chapter 11 and look unto Jesus and what he endured and what motivated him. He endured far more than we'll ever endure, and he did it based on his appreciation and perspective of eternal glory. There is a reward coming for those that will give themselves up in this life. He that will lose his life for my sake shall find it. If you try to keep your life in this world, you'll lose it. In this world, and you have no hope of life in the world to come. That's an amazing statement. Do you know what kind of faith it takes to make a decision based on something unseen and give up things seen. That's what it comes down to. Right. We've only got 70 years. Listen, the whole world is saying you only go around once in life, live it with all the gusto you can. Do you mean faith requires me to give up this life in the hope that there's a future life? Is that faith? 
You can't see that future life, can you? Anybody ever come back and tell you about it? Well, they have. It's in the Word of God. Are you able to give up your life? Listen, this, this is the hardest decision men make, but this is the bottom line of Christianity. Right. Jesus said, if you don't hate your own life also, you are not worthy of me and you cannot be my disciple. We're going to have people join this church, be baptized. God have mercy on me for baptizing men that depart from that profession of faith, but they're not willing to lose their lives for Christ's sake. Remember those three assumptions of faith I taught you? The bottom line is, do you believe in God enough to lose your life here and now? That is a hard decision to make. I will, as far as I am able, make all my choices in this life to honor God, even if it means depriving me of every comfort, joy, pleasure that my flesh craves. Because I'm going to believe his word, that he is, and he is the great rewarder of them that seek him, and there is a better life coming where there is eternal glory and pleasures forevermore. That I don't know how to make it simpler. You have to look at things you can't see and choose them over everything the world is bombarding you with today. Never did Paul have ever preached to a church that could see more temptation than we see because we have media now that is able to get plenty before your eyesight. That's the bottom line. Are you able to see that joy out there? Is it worth enduring a few afflictions here? Losing a job? Losing some family members? Creating some enemies? Selling a house and moving? What is what is that compared to what Jesus Christ endured? To sweat blood over it? First argument for maintaining constancy. The whole point of Hebrews is to hold fast your profession. First argument, consider the witnesses of Hebrews 11 and look to Jesus. The second argument is in verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 through 11 teach everything bad that happens to a child of God, the affliction that comes into the life of a child of God is sent for his well-being, not to destroy him. And if we get a proper perspective of the things that happen to us, we ought not to grieve or to despise them or to faint under them, but to rejoice that God is merciful enough and loves us enough to do the things that he does toward us. Verse 5. You pitiful Hebrews, why are you thinking about apostatizing from your profession of faith? Have you forgot what Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 say? That's Hebrews 12, 5. Let's read it now. And he's leaving the argument of verses 1 through 4. Look at the witnesses. Look at Jesus. Consider Jesus as an example. He's the greatest example. Too good for chapter 11. I love it. He gets a different chapter. Too good for Hebrews chapter 11. Then verse 5, and here's your other problem. Not only are you not looking at Jesus enough, you've forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. And Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. My son, 
despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Notice the word faint there in verse 5. The same word from verse 3. Paul gives one argument to keep you from fainting in verses 1 through 4. Now verses 5 through 11. Here comes another argument to keep you from fainting. You shouldn't faint when God disciplines you, when God chastens you, when God brings affliction into your life, because it's coming as an evidence, as a token of his love. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. How many times have we sat down with our children and tried to tell them the pain you are about to suffer is because I love you? I often ask my children to explain that concept to me to make sure they understand it. Why am I doing this? First of all, because God told me so. They'll tell me that. Second of all, because you love me. And you don't want me to grow up to be a foolish man. Despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Oh, what does the word faint there mean? Could we consider that depressed? Don't get depressed when thou art rebuked of him. Discouraged when thou art rebuked of him. I preach some message and cut your little life up and prick you in the heart. Is it time to go home and get depressed over it? I just can't live up to the expectations of that minister. He just preaches too hard. The Bible's too tough. It's too demanding. That's fainting under the chastening and rebuke of the Lord. We should rejoice when affliction comes our way because it is proof that God loves me. God loves me. Listen, there are some that take comfort that God loves them from a little song they learned when they were three years old. Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, listen, if you know that Jesus loves you, it better be based on something scriptural. And the scriptural evidence for the love of Jesus is that he beat you. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If these Hebrews were even thinking about running back into Judaism and forsaking the gospel because of their affliction, everybody's persecuting us. The Jews have turned us out. We've had to move away from Jerusalem. We have to live in the country now and melt goats for a living. We've lost everything. You've forgotten something. You've forgotten Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Don't faint when you're rebuked of God. Don't despise God's chastening because it is an evidence of his love. Look at Proverbs 13 and verse 24. Proverbs 13, 24. When the world looks at a father who beats his child, they accuse him of what emotion toward his child? Hating him. When parents give their children all they want, praise them all day long, tell him he's a good boy when he throws a brick through the window, because he's been creative. Listen, that's what I that's what I learned in psychology. Summerhill. Ever read the book? Summerhill, an experimental approach to education in England. Don't clothe anyone, adults or children. Let them allow their own natural expression. If they break a window, praise them for the way they did it. Absolutely total anarchy 
no restraint at all. And if you practice that, psychologists will say you love your child. Give them what they want. Don't hit them. Don't beat a child. You'll warp him. You're damaging him. You're just taking out your adult frustrations on that poor little victim. Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son. When a child does something wrong and is starting a behavior, a pattern of behavior for the rest of his life, and it's not checked by a father, it's proof that that father hates him. Because that pattern is going to continue, and the son's going to learn to be an ill-behaved man when he's older. And it's going to bring that son into trouble as a man. You, you withhold the rod. You spare the rod. You hate your son. It doesn't say withhold. It just says spare. Give it to him liberally. He that soweth liberally shall reap liberally. He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. But he that loveth him, a man that loves his son, chasteneth him betimes. He chastens him early, is what the word betimes means in our King James Bibles. He gets him early. He starts early. And he's effective through chastening. And it is an evidence of love. The very opposite of this world. Now there is in the world a great deal of religious teaching done today. That God wants you to have a wonderful life. He has Cadillacs waiting for you. And I wish I had some gold watches and rings and stuff hanging from my coat. I put a, I put a page a couple weeks ago on the back table from Reverend Ike. And all Reverend Ike wants to get for you. If you'll just send to his ministry. There's a lot of teaching done that this abundant life, pleasures and happiness, joy and riches, are what God wants to pour out on those who will give enough to this charismatic ministry. There's a tremendous amount of teaching like that. God loves you, and he wants you to enjoy the abundant life. When I read Hebrews 12 and try to keep things in perspective, I read God loves us and wants to make our lives miserable sometimes for our betterment. Right. When they see affliction in their lives, they automatically conclude that God must be upset. And God must not be pleased with them. God must not love them very much. Listen, affliction in the life of a believer who's been as faithful as he knows how is evidence of God's love. You say, that's warped. It doesn't make sense. How can... That's pitiful. You mean I should take glory in tribulation? That's right. It says that somewhere. Somewhere like 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 5, and James chapter 1. Yes. Because it's evidence of God's love. Verse 7. If ye endure chastening. The sins that so easily beset us. We know we've got them. We know we struggle with them. We know we've got weights in our lives. If affliction comes our way, if chastening comes our way, God bringing evil into our lives to turn us away from our sins. If it happens, God dealeth with you as with sons. God is being your father. He's treating you like a child. And I mean that in a good way. He's treating you like you are his son. For what son is he? whom the Father chasteneth not. All you fathers should ask yourselves that. If you don't chasten your son, what kind of a son is he? Is that son a bastard and you didn't tell us? That son 
the son of another woman, and you haven't told us? Listen, if you don't chasten your son, it's you don't love that son. You're not giving him the best in training. Because what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? What father is going to let a son just go his own way without chastening him? He must not have much regard for that son. He must be a bastard. An illegitimate son that he doesn't really care about. Because verse 8 tells us, But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers. God is the perfect father. Do you know what that means? Every son gets whipped. Every son gets chastened. But if you're without that chastening, then are ye bastards and not sons. The way a father treats his children gives evidence of his level of affection toward them. If he loves his son, he's going to chasten him, correct him, in order to make him a better man. But if it's an illegitimate child, the son of another woman, he may have a disregard for that child, and disregard in this text is shown by not chastening him. What if your life, on average, in general, is a life without any affliction? If you sin and get away with it, and you don't endure some affliction and trouble and problems in your life, whether they be physical, economical, family, or professional, what does it say about you? What should it cause you to question? Am I a son of God? Because all of God's sons he takes better care of than this. He'd be sending me some affliction if he loved me. Sounds perverse, doesn't it? Because we've got perverted minds. Why haven't I got any affliction? Let me put it this let me push it this far. Do you crave some affliction? When it comes, do you rejoice in it? <coughs> Turn two pages to James, or one page to James chapter one. James chapter one, verse two. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Can you be perfect if tribulation doesn't come? No, you can't be tried. You can't be tested. You can't be made stronger. I, I often refer to the military because the Bible does too. The Bible calls the Christian life warfare. Every man in the military knows that boot camp had better be filled with a few temptations, wouldn't you say? Some of you that have been through boot camp and then advanced basic training, don't they throw a few temptations at you? because they know it'll make you a better man. God does the same thing. Now, if you haven't had any of those, you wonder, they must think, come on, when? They don't want me in the army. They don't aren't going to use me. They're going to put me to desk. I'm going to type the rest of my life. I mean, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. They don't love me. God loves those that he chastens. God chastens those that he loves. And we ought to look forward to that chastening, and when it happens, rejoice in it. When affliction comes our way, unless it is the natural consequences of, I mean, we shouldn't be thankful for our sins that bring it. 
But when God brings affliction into our lives, we should rejoice. This is an opportunity for me to show my faith. This is an illustration. This is a token of God's love to me. He has written me a love letter in the form of this affliction. As you're laying there in the hospital bed, I want to see you smiling at me instead of boo-hooing. When a loved one dies, from the scriptural, spiritual perspective, let's see some rejoicing. When things go wrong in your family, when family members leave you, let's see some rejoicing. God allowed you to get into a situation where you're suffering affliction. Why did he do that? Because he has less regard for you? Because he has high regard for you. You are his son. And he's treating you different from the rest of the world. Verse 9, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us. Haven't we had fathers who beat us? Well, I can't ask that question anymore. Have you ever read about fathers who beat their sons? Well, let's go back to the Bible. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9. There isn't a whole lot of it in the last century. But Paul said, Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits? and live if we had fathers of our flesh that beat us and we reverenced them and you know reverence is very careful attention to honoring them properly shouldn't we do it much more to the father of spirits and live oh so many verses on the word reverence our fathers to be reverence reverence you know, we often pick on ministers who use the word reverend in front of their name because the, the, the specific word reverend occurs once in the Bible and it's applied to God. I agree that a minister should not be called reverend. But a father can be called reverend. What is, it, what is a reverend? Someone who is worthy of reverence. Let's, let's keep with the very word. And fathers are to be reverenced. I mean, I read, Cursed be he that setteth light by his father and his mother. He that mocketh his father with his eye, the eagles of the valley shall pluck it out. He that doth not fear father and mother shall be cut off. Leviticus 19.3, fear of father and mother. Reverence of fathers is what God expects. We better maintain it in our homes. But if we've received it, if we've received correction from our fathers and we reverence them, we've got to go back to the Bible. Paul did it. Hopefully some of us did it. How much more should we reverence God when he chastens us? If they corrected us, we reverence them. When God corrects us, shouldn't we much rather give reverence to God and hold fast to our profession and do those things that are pleasing to him? Verse 11 Verse 10, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. You know, what? what's the basis for men chastening their children? To make their children as much like them as possible. I mean, hopefully a man, uh, hopefully a man is what he's trying to make his children become. Now, if a father is not what he's disciplining his children to become, the children are probably not going to become that because they're going to imitate dad 
more than learn from his training. They do it for their own pleasure. Every man wants to have children that behave and think and act the way he does in general. They did it for a few days. Listen, it doesn't last very long, does it? Some of us probably wish we could go back to our childhood days in some ways and start over. It's a few days and it's gone. They verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. They may not always have had the best of motives in mind when they chastened us. They may not had every bit of knowledge that God expected a man to have on how a son should be trained, but God does. The second half of that verse reads, But he, for our prophet, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Why does God chasten us? For our prophet. Compared to a father. Paul's drawing a distinction. Verse 9 was, God is greater than a father. If we gave our fathers reverence, we should give God greater reverence. Verse 10, our fathers in the flesh corrected us for their own pleasure. Sometimes it gets out of bound. They're trying to create something that isn't necessarily for our profit. You know, they just want to shut the kid up so they can have watch the football game. You follow what Paul's arguing here? Sometimes dad just may shut the child up simply because he wants to watch the game without being interrupted. God always has in mind the profit of those that he chastens. Jeff Oley, Sam Jones, and others of you who have suffered affliction recently, God is doing it for your profit. He is making you better if you'll meet the condition of the next two verses. Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Paul is reasonable enough to say, that it's hard to count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations because at the moment it's grievous. I never remember laughing nor cheering nor thanking my parents while they were beating me. I can remember distinctly screaming, that's enough, that's enough, I won't do it again, I won't do it again, I'm sorry mommy, I'm sorry mommy. Ever heard those words? It's grievous while you're receiving it. No chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, it's like Jesus Christ looked beyond the present. Nevertheless, afterward, afterward, Jeff and Sam, I believe five years from now, two years from now, ten years from now, and any other in this congregation, you will be the better for what's happened to you. Because afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness, unto them which are exercised thereby. Chastening, affliction, is only valuable and only works its peaceable fruit of righteousness unto those that respond to it properly. When affliction comes, it should not drive you from God. It should not drive you to discouragement, nor depression, nor fainting. It should cause you to rejoice that God is making you perfect. It should cause you to look ahead. This trial will make me a better man. And to see that reward and be exercised by it. And whatever weakness is pointed out by the chastening, eliminate it. And be exercised by the chastening. God's chastening, the love he shows, is only effective on those that are exercised by it. Affliction in your life may 
drive you away. But you're not being exercised by it the proper way. What makes the difference in a person that's exercised by it and a person who's not? What's the difference in their attitude or perspective that causes that to happen? They forget the purpose and meaning behind the chastening. Just what we need to explain to our children all the time. Chase This affliction that's in my life is because God loves me. This affliction that's in my life is because God wants to make me a better man. That puts it in a different perspective where we want to respond to it. If it's going to make me better, I want to use it to be better then. If we're thinking, why is God so treating me so miserably? Why is he always making me hurt? Why am I suffering so much? Well, that'll drive us away from the Lord instead of driving us to him. That'll not exercise us the proper way. I know it doesn't seem joyous at the moment. It's grievous. But if you look at it with the proper perspective and consider what comes afterward, affliction in our lives is something for our prophet. It's God saying, I love you to sinful men as he chastens us to make us better. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 on the subject of chastening and tribulation. Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also. We should glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed. All of that begins with tribulation. You won't have hope without tribulation. Tribulation builds hope. Tribulation builds patience and experience. We need to look forward and receive tribulation well in our lives and be exercised by it. Back to Hebrews chapter 12, Paul's given two arguments in this chapter as to how and why the Hebrew Christians should maintain perseverance and continue in their long-distance race for their crown of eternal glory. First of all, consider the witnesses that are watching from Hebrews 11. Don't you want to match them or exceed them? Look to Jesus, the greatest example of all. And then remember that the afflictions and troubles that do come your way that are so distracting, that are so tempting to cause you to give up, are actually coming to make you better and are actually a sign of God's bountiful care, not of Him leaving you and forsaking you. It's because he's expressing his love to you. And with that kind of a perspective, these Hebrew Christians could look at the whippings they were receiving, their goods being spoiled from Hebrews chapter 10, and all the tribulation they were enduring, the contradiction of the other Jews against them, and they could rejoice in it. God's making us better. This is a sign of his love. And we're going to endure it as Jesus Christ did because we are going to look at the joy set before us in the future that will be realized in eternal glory. Without going into the point at all, look at verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, given those reasons, given those first two main arguments, lift up the hands which hang down. Lift up the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Oh, I can hear a coach yelling, get those knees up. Ever heard that? Any of you that went out for track or football, baseball or other sports, you had to run, get those knees up. Pump those arms. Lift up the feeble hands. 
You know, we walk around, we're so beat. Lift them up. There's reasons for lifting them up, and they've just been given. Lift right. up those hands. Lift up those knees. Make straight paths for your feet. Lay aside those weights. Look for a straight path to your goal, and let's run this race. You can't run a race with limp hands. Ever seen a sprinter run with limp hands? His arms are pumping. Ever seen a man run with fainting legs, feeble knees? Listen, men with feeble knees are, in, are couch potatoes. They're not athletes. This is the word of God. The witnesses of Hebrews 11 gave us an example. Jesus Christ gives us a greater example. Chastening affliction and temptation, trials that you endure as a Christian in your spiritual life are signs of God's love. They're given for your benefit. Four minor reasons, two big arguments. Lift up your hands and your knees, brethren. Let's run our races all out and aim for that prize that is set before us, which is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Don't be discouraged in your Christian walk. Let's run our races.